Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in as ever. And as ever, we have got a lot to cram in in our time together. We're between the two major party conferences. Labour has ended, Tories beginning. Uh, If you're listening to this at the beginning of the week or at the end of the weekend, you know what I mean. And uh, so tons to reflect on. And of course, the petrol crisis rumbles on. Uh, Now, a lot of the questions today, and there are some brilliant questions, relate to Keir Starmer and his speech earlier in the week. So there to come, there are some questions on other topics as well. So we'll come to them fairly soon. Uh, Just a reminder, the Rock and Roll Politics is live at King's Place on Monday, October the 11th at 7pm. And that will be after the Tory conference. So there will be so much to reflect on. Has Keir Starmer changed the political weather? What has been the mood at the Tory conference? I don't know yet. I haven't got there as I'm speaking to you now, but obviously next week, uh, live at King's Place, we'll reflect on that. It's streaming live as well. Tickets are at the King's Place website. Get yours now. Put it in the diary. And there's something we can all look forward to, making sense of the ever-changing political situation. So, Questions coming up, but before those, uh, yeah, I had a real kind of, kind of, well, you know, insight sounds so grand. I had a moment of insight, which I want to share with you all in the podcast. Uh, It might be completely nonsensical, but it followed an interview on Conservative Home with uh, Kwasi Kwarteng and uh, the business secretary. And it kind of echoes the interviews Boris Johnson has given at the start of the Tory conference, justifying, in inverted commas, the uh, fuel crisis at the moment, uh, and uh, saying basically, you'll have heard the argument, that uh, they are moving on from what they call the low-wage, high-immigration model, Uh, they are calling it a transition to something else, a high-wage model. Now, and in the meantime, uh, in his interview, and Boris Johnson is saying the same, they'll take a few emergency measures, but otherwise it is necessary for people, to quote Quasi, to tough it out, tough it out. And I read this and thought, now, what does these two different messages remind me of? The first message being, they are moving on from a model of free movement of labour to one in which you keep out people from Europe, uh, but turn those who work in Britain into uh, sectors with much higher wages, better conditions, and so on. But while the transition is going from one to another, people will have to tough it out. The first part is Bennite. The essence of Tony Benn's alternative economic strategy, or alternative economic policy, in the late 70s and early 80s was import controls. 
And Tony Benn argued, exactly as Boris Johnson and his largely Thatcherite cabinet are arguing, uh, that import controls means that you can boost wages in the United Kingdom, create jobs for people within the United Kingdom, without being exposed to what Tony Benn regarded as distorting competition by allowing either goods or labour to come in unimpeded to the UK. Import controls. Now, when Tony Benn proposed that in the late 70s and early 80s, the Conservative Party and the newspapers portrayed this as a kind of communist nightmare. Cuba came up as a comparison, sealing Britain off, protecting Britain's unproductive workforce. Protectionism was another uh, word used against the Ben vision. This is precisely the argument being used by this Conservative government. The import control they are referring to is labour. They want to control labour coming into the United Kingdom to give British workers the chance to put up their wages uh, and those wages in going up will encourage more people to go into these sectors to meet the demand. And the British economy, if you like, will be artificially protected from various forms of external influences by, in effect, import control, control of free movement, ending free movement. So that's a Benite argument. But the other side, and of course Quateng, like a lot of the current government, Liz Truss and others, have written many pieces about and pamphlets on their support for the small state, their continuing advocacy of a kind of turbocharged small state Thatcherism. Uh, the other part of the message is you've got to tough it out. With great reluctance, the state might bring in the army or allow a few thousand lorry drivers in from Europe. But on the whole, forget about the state helping people. You have to tough it out. And in toughing it out, the sector will lift. It won't be done by government assistance. It will be done by people just toughing it out. Now, that part of the message is Thatcherite. Nothing the state can do. The sector will respond to these transformed conditions of uh, Benite import controls. And in the meantime, if there are miles of petrol queues, you'll have to tough it out. Um, and it kind of clicked with me, my moment of insight. This government is both Thatcherite and Benite simultaneously. Indeed, I tweeted this, uh, linking it to the Kwarteng interview. And Tony Benn's daughter, Melissa Benn, tweeted, I never thought I'd read that. But it is um, something I've noticed before about the modern Conservative Party. Several years ago, when Conservative MPs were making Cameron's life hellish as Prime Minister, I noted then the Tory Parliamentary Party becoming evangelical followers of Tony Benn without realising it, 
on other issues about sovereignty, one of his big themes, the sovereignty of the British Parliament, and on issues about accountability to local parties and local memberships rather than loyalty to the leadership. Uh, the Conservative Party has changed from a party that was uh, reliably loyal to their leader, whoever he or she happened to be, to one where the parliamentary party or a section of it felt more accountable to local members and became far more rebellious, as we've seen in recent years on issues, whether it's Brexit, the pandemic and lockdown, and I suspect we'll see it as Rishi Sunak makes his moves uh, in terms of public spending cuts and other matters in the coming months and years. So they've already become partially Benite, but on economic policy, they were always kind of really uh, turbocharged Thatcherites. Not Johnson himself, not Theresa May under the influence of Nick Timothy, um, who uh, famously, or not actually as famous as it should be, but in the 2017 manifesto, uh, the Conservatives put forward a case for the state uh, for the first time since the Thatcher, since before the Thatcher era. Um, but on the whole, uh, Tory MPs were turbocharged Thatcherites, but Brexit has changed that. Economically now, they've become advocates of Tony Benn's alternative economic strategy, uh, and uh, putting that as a case for high wages. Uh, so <laughs> it is the most bizarre situation that a figure condemned by the newspapers and the Tory party as a kind of dangerous kind of, yeah, Castro-esque kind of figure, is now their model both for kind of internal party matters, democracy and sovereignty, and economic policy with their support for import controls. But Tony Benn was not a Thatcherite. He believed in an active state. They don't really. So the other side of this is that, um, yeah, people would just have to tough it out. It's a curious combination. It's utterly bizarre as a combination. But in some ways, it is quite potent. Uh, there is an argument that wages were artificially suppressed and standards uh, appallingly overlooked in things like the haulage industry because people knew that they could get labour in very cheaply from Eastern Europe and didn't do anything else. Oh, they'll come in, you know, for crap wages and terrible conditions. And so, you know, there was always a potent argument for import controls. The problem is this, that by doing this, there is absolutely no evidence so far that the labour shortage will be addressed. And in a way, uh, those who put a case for remaining did have an answer to this. I'm not saying that they ever addressed it in practical terms, but they did say that you could have free movement and decent wages by imposing a high, higher, much higher living wage or minimum wage.
as a matter of government legislation. And that means you have the demand met, if necessary, by people from the European Union. Um, but either way, you get decent pay. In other words, it's legislated for as an entirely separate issue. Um, but anyway, we're not going down that route. However, that does mean uh, shortages will... I mean, there's no way you're going to get many lorry drivers coming over from Eastern Europe on the basis of the offer in inverted commas made so far. You know, come here. We're now saying, at the beginning of last week, it was, come here, come here. Yeah, we won't provide you with any accommodation. You've got to bugger off by Christmas Eve. Uh, now it's been extended a bit beyond Christmas Eve. They can stay for Christmas if they want to, but it looks as like if Christmas is going to be threadbare in the United Kingdom um, because of uh, the problems with supply chains on the food front and supermarket front. So one of the warnings about Brexit was precisely this, that free movement was a massive boost to the economy and to the British economy. And the only way it could have been planned for is if during the transition, loads and loads and loads of people from the United Kingdom were trained up in the various sectors that needed replacements from those who were going back to the European Union. But there was no planning. And for the planning to have been effective, the transition would have had to be much longer. But Boris Johnson, who gave no thought to any of this until the crises erupted around him, uh, went for the machismo of a very short negotiating period. Do you remember the European Union saying, look, you know, we can, can these talks can keep going for some time until we resolve them satisfactorily on both sides. And with COVID, the talks have been disrupted, so an extension might be a good idea. An extension during which, amongst other things, Johnson could have focused on training people from within Britain to drive lorries, to pick fruit and vegetables and all the other things that have gone rotting, to work at hotels and restaurants, all of which are pleading for workers to fill vacancies. None of that happened. And he opted for the machismo, him and Frosty, you know, with his Union Jack socks, for the quickest possible negotiation, the poorest possible outcome. I gather that the diaries of Barnier that have just been published show the degree to which old Frosty was outmaneuvered at every stage. Well, Frosty, fighting for Britain. Um, and it kind of reflects the shallowness, really, of it all, that um, machismo of a quick negotiation uh, overwhelmed all other possibilities. And so... Even though there is an argument in favour of Benite import controls, it has to be accompanied by the most thorough long-term planning uh, to meet the inevitable sh shortage of labour in the short or medium term. Nothing until now where you have these emergency messages and the Benite message accompanied by the Thatcherite message, you tough it out. This is not a matter for government to intervene too extensively. And in a way it's fascinating, it's the same to some extent with the failure of the market in the gas sector. 
where you have this completely bonkers market where the idea is that smaller companies should come in to create competition and choice for consumers. Um, the smaller companies gamble on the price of gas. If it goes too high, they cannot put the price up because there's a price cap, um, which is their attempt to sort of regulate and manage the market. Uh, a thing that when Ed Miliband proposed it, it was again seen as a sort of act of um, Castro-esque outrage and is now a government policy. Uh, but it's a government policy which is incoherent because it means the smaller companies go bust when they can't uh, meet the increased prices for gas. And then you're left with the old market of a few in monopolies. So what material for Keir Starmer as leader of the opposition? I think I'm going to go into much more detail live at uh, King's Place in uh, what he's been up to uh, with his speech and other matters. Uh, by then, quite a lot more might have been going on. Um, but there are arguments to be framed around what has happened in terms of petrol, those import controls and the Thatcherite response to the panic caused by the import controls. Um, and and the failure of the gas market. Uh, he had and delivered a speech that showed he's a, you know, this nonsense, you know, what does he stand for? As if someone at the top of the legal profession would leave it to become a backbench MP without believing anything. Of course he wants to bring about profound change. Um, and he conveyed a sort of solidity and there's a potentially compelling juxtaposition between his solidity and what he called the trivial nature of Johnson's leadership. But there's a whole big argument about values, policies that arise from values, almost a programme for government in um, these crises erupting around Johnson's confused, ideologically confused government at the moment. And it's going to be interesting at the Tory conference to see how they address these various contradictory approaches. There are much more. There's Johnson's self-proclaimed, uh, call me Rooseveltian, levelling up. And the fiscal, self-described fiscal conservative, Rishi Sunak in the Treasury. Um, there are all these kind of internal confusions um, but did Keir Starmer frame a compelling argument about why there is this chaos arising from these confused ideological values? It's not just incompetence, although that's part of it, of course. And then what does that say about Labour and its values and the way it would deal with these situations? Is by the way, not easy, because... Are you saying, you know, the answer is actually, and they're not saying this, of course, a return to free movement. They've absolutely ruled that out. So what and why? Um, if asked, you know, it was a, there were some many meaty ideas and policies in not only Keir Starmer's speech, but throughout the conference. Uh, we'll come to it in a minute with your questions, but... Um, and so I'm going to look at it in more detail along with Johnson's speech and the whole drama of the Tory conference. 
depending on what's going on on Monday, October the 11th, I mean, who knows, it could have all been, uh, politics moves fast, other things could be going on. But, you know, I'll be looking at it at some point at King's Place Live that evening. Um, but if asked to summarise the argument in Keir Starmer's speech, quite hard to do it. It was crammed with themes and policies, but was there a running thread running through it? I was less sure about that. Funnily enough, I talked about the Fabian pamphlet last week. In a way, there was an argument there about uh, active government and the way it could engage with business, with other parts of society. Um, but anyway, it was a long... It was a long speech. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Four blokes been waiting well over a year to deliver something like that in a public uh, space. Um, but anyway, we'll come to that with your questions. So, yeah, we've got a government that is both Benite and Thatcherite, and um, uh, with all kinds of implications for how you challenge that and how they manage those two dominant ideological threads uh, in the coming, well, just at the Tory conference, but in the coming months after that. Which takes me to your questions. Now, what I'm going to do, there are a lot on uh, uh, the Starmer and the Labour conference, but I'll sprinkle others along the way. So we have a bit of variety, if that's okay, with all of you. Let's go to Lewis... McAvoy, is that your, how you say your surname, Lewis? I hope so. Um, anyway, uh, he wants definition of Keir Starmer. Is it the case that for better or for worse, that Starmer is on the Labour right and a successor to the Blairite tradition? I love your podcast, eagerly await listening to it every week. Oh, thank you very much. And I've just purchased your new book on the Prime Ministers we never had. Oh, thank you very much uh, for that. Well, we might as well end now. Can't get any better. Um, now, Lewis gives some examples of why uh, he thinks, for better or for worse, uh, Starmer is in the Blairite tradition, his choice of front bench people, etc. Um, I'll just make two observations on this. One, if he is defined by whether he is a follower of Tony Blair uh, or whatever, um, he's in some trouble. I mean, Tony Blair, in 1994, when he became Labour leader, did not seek definition by being Harold Wilson-like or appointing Wilson's aides to guide him to election victories. Um, he was new and fresh and different, a product of, you know, the turmoil of Labour in the 80s and 90s. Um, and... So there was no attempt to define him by the past, and I think Keir Starmer needs to avoid that. In policy terms, uh, there were more radical propositions put forward at that conference uh, than would have happened between 94 and 97 under Tony Blair. Um, just to give one emblematic example, uh, Labour is proposing to scrap the charitable status on private schools. Uh, to pay for other school funding. Now, when the then Shadow Education Secretary, David Blunkett, raised that as a possibility in the build-up to the 97 election, he nearly lost his job. 
all hell broke loose that Labour could possibly contemplate something like that. So you can see that in the unrecognisably changed context of now, there are different propositions. There are some new Labour echoes, some of them wholly to be hailed. Um, you know, that like this um, new office for value for money that Rachel Reeves is proposing. It's a great idea. It gives Labour space to talk about public spending if there is a sense that it can be trusted with public spending. Uh, a preoccupation of Gordon Brown, uh, you know, not only up to 97, but beyond in government. So there are echoes, and I think they speak, uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves, to Gordon Brown as much as Tony Blair or Peter Mandelson. There are echoes, but he's got to be careful about being defined in this way. And uh, uh, most political journalists, their memory does not go beyond Tony Blair. So immediately lots of them go, oh yeah, this is Tony, the return of Tony Blair. Um, I would be a bit worried uh, about that if I were leader of the Labour Party. So I'm going to sprinkle them with other questions not related to that. Uh, Noah Keat writes, uh, now I've, I've always argued that Messrs Corbyn, uh, the Lib Dem leader at the time, whose name has temporarily escaped me, that's terrible, politics, eh, uh, and others, were wrong to give that election in December 2019 to Boris Johnson on the date he wanted uh, during his prime ministerial honeymoon. But Noah Keat says, do you not believe that when you have a hung parliament on such an important constitutional matter, Brexit obviously at the time, going to the country for a new parliament and a different way forward is the only alternative. It's surely not possible to continue a parliament forever when there was so little consensus. It was a wacky parliament, that one. Uh, you know, you had all these people united against... Johnson's version of Brexit, but so many of them were also united in not wanting Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister. It was a mess. However, you do not, unless you're a masochist, give a Prime Minister an election on the date he wanted when you have no uh, kind of reason why you have to do it. You know, this, uh, Theresa May called the election which produced that wacky hung parliament only in you know, the summer of 2017, than Johnson's hard Brexit is going to fascinate historians for many years to come. Uh, Dominica Jewell, our regular correspondent from France, uh, she's uh, looking at the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you think the UK government will trigger Article 16? That will basically mean kind of ending the carefully negotiated, well, carefully on one level, uh, protocol. She says, I think that the influence of France is underestimated in the British press, quite probably. Assuming that EU sanctions would take some time to come into effect, France, backed by the EU, has the ability to cut off uh, or drastically reduce cross-channel trade, as it has done, in, as it did in the earlier days of the pandemic. Oh yeah, I remember that. <clears throat> when suddenly uh, France was taking extra precautions uh, about uh, goods coming here and lorry drivers coming here and back again and all the rest of it. Yeah, well, if they do that, uh, Dominica, we are completely buggered. And it's in the end why I think, perhaps wrongly, 
it's it's very hard to tell them because old Frosty threatens to trigger it all the time. And Johnson, of course, got the right to trigger Article 16. Uh, Dominique mentions that Biden will have a nervous collapse if it happens and so on. I don't think he will because of all the, we're going to use this word a lot in this session, consequences that will arise. Um, but, um, oh yeah, she says, uh, Dominique, it was interesting to note that on the French National Evening News, the fishing dispute was covered on three out of five evenings. Um, oh, really? Well, it hasn't been covered here recently. It gets the occasional fleeting mention. So, God, yeah, things are hotting up when it, it merits that kind of coverage. Thank you, Dominica. Keep on letting us know the perspective from France, because we don't get much of it here in the UK. In fact, this podcast is so international. We get so many different viewpoints from around the world. Okay, I said we'll uh, sprinkle it about. Um, uh, oh, yeah, Adam Strudwick raises something which is always kind of interesting. One thing I've never heard mentioned by commentators is the natural advantage given to the Tories by the order in which the party conferences take place. Lib Dems first, Labour, and then Tory. It's like the final question of PMQs, where the PM can attack the opposition leader, and the opposition leader can't then come back. Yeah, it's always crossed my mind what a massive advantage it is. I suspect that by the end of the Tory conference, the Keir Starmer speech, all the apparent dramas of the Labour conference will seem very distant. And Boris Johnson will have the last word at the party conferences. Uh, and then it's back to politics of the autumn in Parliament. So, yeah, so I don't know when this began, that order, but it is a big advantage to have the last word. Uh, Jeff uh, Strange. Hi, Stephen. Greetings, all podcasts. That's us lot. We're podcasts. Uh, hi, podcasts. Um, oh, Jeff, so loving the new book. Thank you. I, he said, I do spare a thought for John Smith, a beast now somewhat forgotten, yet so huge and forging that path for the Blair Brown double act. John Smith doesn't make it in my book on prime ministers. We never have because the book is a an exploration of those who were seen as likely prime ministers and never made it, and trying to explain or find the reasons why they failed. We know the very sad reason John Smith failed. Um, it was because of uh, dying so young, and that applies to a couple of others who don't make the book. Um, uh, but he, he was a big figure, and I think he would have been... He had a self-confidence of someone who had been in power. He was a cabinet minister towards the end of the Callaghan era. He would have been uh, a formidable prime minister, I think. Anyway, while this is back to Jeff, uh, while our attention is diverted um, uh, from, sorry, uh, while our attention is diverted to one of madness at petrol stations, yeah, it's, it surely is, Oh, yeah. Uh, Frosty is now threatening to invoke Article 16. We've had the French perspective on that. Um, but what they don't understand is that the EU has the right under Article 16 to rebalance any such measures that the UK might take. Yeah, you're echoing what Dominica has been saying. 
it's plain to see that the Conservative Party is now no longer the Conservative and Unions Party um, in their willingness to uh, jettison uh, North, basically the protocol. Yeah, it's interesting that the protocol is going to come back into the news big time. And, and you lot, uh, you lot, sorry, sound kind of, you know what I mean, all of you kindly emailing uh, um, are ahead. It, it's it, uh, old uh, Frosty is focusing on it, which is always ominous. Uh, Jeff says, see you at King's Place on October 11th for much merriment. Yeah, we'll have a laugh amidst the darkness, some light and dark. It's a great Shakespearean theme, you know, Macbeth, darkness and light. Um, okay. Oh, and Jeff listens to the podcast with a single malt. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Um, although I, I prefer a glass of chilled white wine. Maybe red now. The autumnal days are heading our way. Um, Keith Riley puts the case, as many of you do, um, for uh, proportional representation. He says, first past the post really suits a political system with just two parties, like the US. <clears throat> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, although we really do have only two potential governing parties in Britain. Um, but anyway, Jeff goes on to say, uh, uh, so in the US, the anti-vote, in this case, the anti-Trump vote, tends not to get split. But in this country, whilst only one of two parties can currently win a general election and get power, many can lose. Hence, Johnson getting a thumping majority with only 40% of the votes. More voters are anti-Tory than pro-Tory, but their votes are spread out. So the Tories get total unfettered power. Very powerful argument for changing the voting system. Keith, there is an alternative, which is coming up in another question, which is these parties, the fracturing of the anti-Tory vote could be addressed by, anyway, you, 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 there are problems. I don't think electoral packs are coming our way. But anyway, there's a question on that later on. Now, uh, Andy Kemp writes, now, this podcast is now following the career of Lee Rowley with great interest. The reason being that somebody at the last Live King's Place show said he was one to watch on the Tory side. Within days, he had become a minister. So um, now Andy Kemp says this, Mr. Rowley is in fact my constituency MP for North East Derbyshire. So now we're really getting, you know, the inside track on Lee Rowley. As well as currently holding the post of Government Whip, Lord Commissioner of HM Treasury and Parliamentary Undersecretary in the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Wow, what a repertoire of titles already. Um, and he points out that the constituency North East Derbyshire lies just south of Sheffield and is a typical former Red Wall territory, which is now deep blue. In addition to the parliamentary constituency, the county and district councils are now controlled by the Conservatives. North East Derbyshire includes the former mining area of Clay Cross, heartland of the 70s Labour rent rebels and birthplace of Dennis Skinner. And he says, what a brilliant local MP he is. This is Andy uh, Kemp saying that. Uh, he responds to letters um, and... Uh, he's genuinely a good representative when it comes to headline-grabbing local issues. Uh, and that 
As with many in the current Tory administration, he doesn't take responsibility for the consequences, that word again, of 11 years of Conservative government. He kind of steps aside from the consequences. Yeah, well, and, and Andy wonders more generally about the importance of being a good local MP. I think it is increasingly significant because of the new fashion for localism. It doesn't mean MPs can save their seats uh, if a party's in deep trouble. Uh, but I think it is becoming uh, quite important. And a lot of MPs now see their role as serving local constituents more than uh, focusing on becoming a cabinet minister. Daniel Cullen writes from Sky, as an actor theatre type of guy, uh, I watch political speeches uh, for the element of performance yeah, now this is interesting. I'm fascinated by the performance of politics. And it's great to hear from an actor theatre type, as Daniel described himself, from Sky or on Sky at the moment. This can sometimes lead me to enjoy speeches by those I don't necessarily love. Blair still takes me with him upon re-watching him talk. I know exactly what you mean. I think it's like listening to music when you listen to his speeches or indeed interviews. Um, and, and I occasionally, this is Daniel, can't help but get swept away by even B Boris Johnson's whimsical theatricality or creative dishonesty. I agree again. Uh, he is one of those, one of the very few I find fascinating to observe at the moment. Um, I'm a pretty forgiving listener to Labour politicians as I'm on their side of the debate on most things. This is Daniel again. Keir Starmer's conference speech is possibly the most hollow feeling, exactly written, every word inflection practised political speech I've ever heard. Ah, if you'd asked me five minutes after Ed Miliband's speech, I'd have even been convinced he was in with the shot. Because of this, I can't see any way of him connecting, this is Keir Starmer, with enough voters. Um, yeah, well, that's interesting because he, um, he got some good reviews uh, on, on the whole, but he isn't one of life's great orators. It was interesting, someone was saying to me that the uh, those on the centre-left who've won elections are lawyers and actors. Bill Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, Tony Blair, uh, they are lawyers and actors. Keir Starmer is obviously, you know, the most senior lawyer of the lot of them in terms of his career, but can he do that performance? Daniel Cullen uh, suggests not. I agree with you about the ones that you find interesting to watch. And why is that? What is the uh, performance that draws draws us in? Let us know, Daniel. I'll be interested in your analysis. Uh, Martin Jones writes, uh, in a future election, the Liberal Democrats might pick up some seats in the South and Labour in the black country and the North. But having disintegrated in Scotland, it seems arithmetically impossible for Labour to form a government, majority government ever again. Um, I'm in my mid-60s with a hope of a few years left in me. I hope you've got a few years left. It's young. Um, uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, by the way, when are you going to have a live show up here in Birmingham? I'd like to go to Birmingham for a live show, Martin. Uh, let me know where you think good venues would be for a live show. Or get a train down to King's Cross or Euston, walk to King's Place, go to the show, have a couple of nights in London, or 
stream it. You know, I mean, there are options. Um, I don't know. It's so impossible to predict the next election. Every election is unpredictable. There was a good column in, by Matthew Paris on the Times in the Times on Saturday, pointing out all the predictions that have been wrong about British politics over the last 15 years and how impossible it is to predict. Um, but you highlight rightly the mountainous obstacles towards uh, Labour returning to power. But frankly, it really is difficult to predict. It depends what the juxtaposition is at the next election between the two main parties and the two leaders. And of course, what happens to this very fragile British economy with a government pursuing Benism and Thatcherism uh, simultaneously. Um, I mean, it might be a triumph, uh, but uh, it makes it just impossible to predict. And Scotland looks... This Labour have got a really good leader in Scotland now, actually, uh, but it still looks very, very tough. Denise Willio writes, As I walk along a windy Shoreham beach, I've been thinking a lot about Keir Starmer's speech and my reaction to it. I like the idea of that walk along Shoreham Beach. I, I do the show at the Rope Tackle Arts Centre in Shoreham, and I think next time I'm going to go along for a lovely long walk on the beach beforehand, because um, it sounds great. Anyway, where were we? I'm wondering whether Starmer's speech served two purposes. One symbolic, in that the Corbynista left were publicly put down and marginalised, uh, as evidenced by the reintroduction of Louise Elman and the way the hecklers were dealt with. Um, and so, yeah, he's saying that uh, with jittery voters, safety was one of his big themes. And the other purpose was in terms of building Starmer's personal confidence. I think that's a perceptive point, Denise. I mean, I think his person, he, he is absolutely steely and determined but you can't be a human being and not suffer an undermining of personal confidence after some of the things that's happened over the last year. And when you are behind in the opinion polls, being behind in opinion polls is a terrible, constant blow to personal confidence. So I agree that part of the whole purpose of the conference, his first real conference as Labour leader, was partly about building up his confidence and sense of authority. Um, so, yeah, um, I think you had good perceptions during your walk on a windy Shoreham beach. Uh, Nick Jones says, um, Starmer could say after the Labour conference uh, that uh, Labour is not the party of Corbyn Marxist uh, left anymore to voters. Whilst it would be harder for the right of the mainstream media to pin anti-Semitism or unpatriotic labels on Starmer come the next election, they will have to revert to the negative, to other negative stereotypes on Starmer Labour. How do you think they will go for Starmer in the next two or three years? This is the newspapers. Uh, this is sorry. This is from Paul Cooper. Um, uh, Nick Jones is uh, going to ask a question in a second. Hold on, for those of you waiting for Nick Jones, this is Paul Cooper. I, I suspect, although again, it's not certain that most newspapers will back the Conservatives at the next election. 
um, the last time, you know, the, 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 the papers really turned on the Tories was in the build-up to 97 after the ERM debacle. They all yearned for Margaret Thatcher. Um, and they turned on John Major. I mean, the Times is largely... Uh, the editorial of the Times is quite critical of the Starmer speech. Um, the Times, big influence on the BBC, because mistakenly a lot of the BBC see that as a kind of impartial paper. It's, it, it, it is basically... Uh, pro-conservative, that the sun was scathing of Starmer. So I think I think they will probably go for him. Um, and that will be a big factor in the election. Um, but let's see. I mean, it, it is so fluid at the moment. And there is such a sense of Britain being on the edge on so many different fronts that, frankly, that could change, Paul. Um, and the media, even the Tory media, can turn. They turned in the early 60s. Wilson became a fashionable figure in Tory newspapers, um, and so did Blair, of course, famously. Um, anyway, we will have to wait and see developments on that front. What I would say is I've got no doubt at all, if, say, Gordon Brown had been Prime Minister at the moment, let alone Jeremy Corbyn, the newspapers by now would have destroyed him then and had a big impact on the way the BBC covered things as well. Um, the fuel dispute alone, would have generated such scathing uh, headlines about, say, Brown, or imagine Corbyn, let alone the 100,000 dead when that happened in the pandemic, um, that I don't think they'd have survived. Um, uh, meanwhile, uh, Boris Johnson flourishes. Um, now, what was it that Nick Jones was going to be asking? Oh, I know you don't think, oh, this is the electoral pacts one. I know you don't think electoral pacts would work, but I wonder if behind the scenes we might start to see more subtle forms of cooperation between parties. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right, Nick, to focus on subtle. Uh, in the build-up to 97, there was a subtle dance between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, which were highly effective for both parties. I mean, Ashdown was an underestimated leader. Uh, Blair could have destroyed the Lib Dems in the build-up to 97. Um, but Ashdown recognised that by working almost with Blair, they both could flourish, and they both did in 97. But, of course, Labour won that uh, landslide. So there are kind of subtle signals you, you can put out. Um, the Lib Dems aren't as strong now to have that kind of potency. Um, but, uh, you know, watch the Greens. I think one of the reasons why the, uh, a very big new Green Deal was announced at the Labour conference was to try and woo those tempted by the Green Party. But you're right, the, there is a need for a subtle dance or else the, uh, the, the forces opposed to the government become too fractured. Hence the uh, very powerful question on electoral reform earlier. Um, uh, Ryan McCullen. Um, oh, yeah, you see, I told you, we're going to get global perspectives all over the place. Ryan says, I'm tuning in from uh, San Francisco, California. Yours is one of my uh, favourite pop day of continuous rain in England, Ryan. Uh, mine's a question about Brexit and where Keir Starmer should look to go. It seems like many of the consequences of Brexit are beginning to accelerate. Yeah. From labour markets to supply chain. 
With that said, I struggle to see any final settlement that will adequately service the needs of the British economy that doesn't functionally behave like the single market. Call it what you like. How does Keir Starmer go about addressing this? My suspicion is that while many would like the election to not be about Brexit, the issue will force itself and be unavoidable. Well, I don't know what you're doing in uh, San Francisco, Ryan. You should come back here because that is you're spot on. Um, it's going to be an, a big issue at the next election. Boris Johnson has already told us it will be. And the framing of the petrol shortages as a case for Brexit is one example of this. And Keir Starmer has got to now start framing an argument about what he means as to a better Brexit, uh, which he referred to in his speech. I agree that in the end, Ryan, uh, Britain will it will take many, many years, uh, but will uh, move towards the Norway position of being in the single market and the customs union, but without being a rule maker. Um, because it's just the economic consequences are already so dire. Um, but it will take a long time, and Keir Starmer will not go into the election putting the case for that. But he needs to flesh out carefully but defiantly and confidently what he means by a better Brexit. And he needs to do it quickly because it will be too late by the time of the election. Uh, Venetia Kane wonders how many of the electorate will be really aware of uh, Keir Starmer's big speech? And in any case, how far will it affect voting intentions? Again, a historical look at this would be most appreciated. Very quickly then, Venetia, um, going back on conference speeches, I think this one will not have the impact Keir Starmer hoped it would have. As uh, we were discussing earlier, I think this was partly about building up his own confidence um, and his authority. Um, 2007 conference, uh, uh, Osborne announced that they were going to cut inheritance tax uh, and Cameron did a speech apparently without a script and it got rave reviews, the polls were moving, Gordon Brown then decided not to hold that 2007 election. So, But mostly I think the, the weight placed on conferences, I can wholly understand why Keir Starmer has placed so much weight on this conference because he has been so constrained. But on the whole, their impact is overestimated and it's overstated by so many political journalists and politicians being gathered together in one place for a few intense alcohol-fueled days and nights. Um, Jonathan Smith from Edinburgh. Uh, looking forward to your book on Prime Ministers we never had. Oh, I'm, He says, I'm a big fan of Roy Jenkins and have a signed copy of A Life at the Centre. Wow, that's one of the great memoirs. And there is a chapter on Jenkins, Jonathan. So no need to look forward to it. Get it and enjoy it now. Forget about the future. Um, read the Angela Rayner scum furore. I listened to a radio show in which the presenter and callers speculated that the main damaging effect was to put off swing voters who don't like to think that they voted for scum at the last election, as the circumstances were not yet right for them to accept that they were wrong. I wonder if, in fact, voters are ever very easily able to accept they were wrong. Um, and I'm sure that political parties are unwise to expect it. Yeah, I agree with you. Voters never, ever 
accept that, that they were wrong. You never hear you know, them say, oh, no, I've got it completely wrong. Um, that doesn't mean they don't change their minds. They do, obviously. They switch from one party to another. Um, but they do so without acknowledging they were wrong before. They kind of assume they've been betrayed or something like that. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's, you know, the right of voters to assert a kind of um, arrogance, really. But um, that scum thing, I think, is another example. You know, the importance of a leader's speech might be overstated. So are things like that. Um, you know, she showed a bit of anger and passion. So what? So what? I don't think it's that significant. I know Tories at their conference will say, oh, Angela Rayner said those voting Tory are voting, um, endorsing scum and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's just a bit of anger. It, if, with so much kind of technocratic politics around at the moment, I kind of don't mind it. And I don't think it will be of any significance. Um, but you might be right, Jonathan. Voters might think it's an attack on them. I don't know. I think they'll be wrong, to, to be honest. Now, a mystery solved. Lorraine Bambrick, I'm so thrilled she's written in again, because I got the names mixed up of a couple of questions. And you'll have to listen back next week to the first phase of this being resolved. Uh, Lorraine writes, it was me listening intently to you as I sampled the delights of Majorcan beach bars. Imagine my surprise when my last email to you was attributed to Claire of the Walthamstow wetlands. Utterly surreal for the contrast. I know the Walthamstow wetlands well, and I can tell you it's not a Majorcan beach bar. Anyway, I really apologise, Lorraine. I don't know how I did it, actually. I don't, you know, I kind of put the, the, all the emails together and something got confused in my head. Um, this week, I'm listening to you as I walk the quiet country lanes of my family home in Ireland. Wow. God, you move around, Lorraine. Um, given the difficulties parties face, even coming to the initial arrangement to coalesce, obviously Ireland being a direct example, isn't a coalition government eternally fated to struggle to move forward with implementing policies? Are there any countries that operate this model well? Well, my uh, mate John Kampfner has written a book about Germany, why Germany does it better, uh, where he argues that that is a country where it works. Um, or is a single party government with a large majority and a firm grasp on its goals and strategy ultimately going to be better for getting things done, to coin a dreadful phrase? Um, yeah, I, I kind of... Oh, Lorraine also adds, just for clarification, usually in Manchester, previously in Mallorca, currently in Ireland. I'm exhausted just following your itinerary, Lorraine. Um, well, as you probably know, I kind of agree with you. You know, we have in this country two parties that are broad coalitions. Um, and that's the way we do things. So the broad coalition has all the kind of internal tensions and in the build up to an election, then agrees on a manifesto. We at least kind of know what we're going to get. And I think that is too easily dismissed as a model because we might not be thrilled with what we're getting at the moment. Um, but 
you know, so if we get the electoral reform of any model, really, what will happen is you vote for a party and then those parties negotiate post-election between themselves, like is happening in Germany at the moment. Um, but, you know, a lot of you are pushing the argument for electoral reform and I am being swayed incrementally. I don't know what you think, Lorraine. I don't, obviously, by implication, you're not swayed yet. Have a good time in Ireland and see, you know, get in touch when you're back in Manchester before the next trip. Um, Gino Doka, I hope I've pronounced uh, your surname correctly. Gino, let me know if not. Um, is Starmer not better off marginalising the Corbyn Easter wing and treating them as mere background noise? That way, the medium voter sees his leadership in sharper release against that erratic, shouty Corbynite rump. Yes, they'll see a vision of disunity, but it will reflect well on Starmer. Well, Gino, I don't know. I, I talked about this before. My, you know, sense of the recent past suggests that's not necessarily the case. I think I mentioned it last week. Neil Kinnett's attack on militant, brilliant theatre and personally courageous in 1985. Um, Labour was slaughtered two years later, etc., etc., but I know that that's a powerful argument. Let's see the polls in the coming weeks. Uh, Fran Bleasdale writes, um, amidst all the rows and acrimony in Brighton, I can't help agreeing, so this is a kind of alternative, Gino, I can't help agreeing with your view that projecting the spell of unity uh, remains key for Labour and Starmer. Uh, one of the issues he faces is that most Corbynite acolytes uh, these past few years are political lightweights, neither impressive in policy ideas or in terms of their ability to robustly perform in the media. See, my answer to that, Fran, is that um, therefore he doesn't really need the, the ostentatious kind of taking them on, in inverted commas. Um, but anyway, that's another thing. Uh, Fran writes it, the one exception is John McDonnell, who, whatever you think of his politics, has seemed to me to be a real heavyweight in every sense, and a political heavyweight, and is a credible performer. I can't help thinking that Starmer should have sought an accommodation with McDonnell uh, right at the start of his leadership to firmly anchor him in the tent. Uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, McDonnell was talked about this in, God, many... Uh, an earlier podcast or an earlier podcast uh, is one of those politicians that surprised me. I mean, I, I, I thought he would be, he would really, really struggle as a shadow chancellor and all the, he'd never been on the front bench. But actually, he proved to be a formidable interviewee um, and kind of kept the show on the road at times. Uh, he was under huge pressure throughout that period. And I think, like you, it would have been sensible to try and have kept him on board. Um, but if you've got a strategy of being seen to destroy that wing, um, to symbol a, a completely renewed Labour Party, you, I suppose, can't include someone like that. But whether that strategy is wise, well, we've discussed that uh, today and on quite a few other occasions. Um, thank you, Fran. Chris Stacey, I've always wondered what would have happened if Gordon Brown 
had called that early general election in 2007, would the whole shape of British politics have uh, been different uh, compared with what did happen? Well, I've already talked about it, Chris, that uh, one of the reasons he, he pulled out of it was the success of the Tory conference and polls moving towards the Tories. My view is that he might well have lost if he had called it. Um, or certainly it could have been a hung parliament and Brown would have been seen to have wiped out a huge Labour majority, which would have placed him in a weaker place than Theresa May when she lost the tiny Tory majority in 2017. So I I think his mistake was to raise the possibility, um, not not calling it, if you know what I mean. But Ed Balls has always taken a different view. He couldn't believe it when he heard that Gordon Brown had decided not to call it. Uh, okay, uh, so that was um, uh, Chris Stacey. Uh, Tom from Brighton says, uh, the recent uh, election result for the first place election result for the German Social Democrats, albeit with 28% of the vote in a multi-party system, is a cause of optimism for the centre-left here and elsewhere, especially following a period of electoral decline for European Social Democratic parties during the previous decade. I'm wondering whether you think this result is much more likely a one-off. I'm thinking here of the degree of continuity given Olaf Scholz's uh, ministerial role in the Grand Coalition. Yeah, exactly. A bit like Attlee, you know, in 45, he'd already been in government. Or a sign that European social democracy is making a comeback. I think, Tom, it is making a comeback. Comeback. I just look at um, other countries in Europe and indeed the United States, um, where different manifestations of social democracy have won or at least uh, acquired power as it looks like the Social Democrats will in uh, Germany by uh, making uh, Schultz the Chancellor. So now, does that pattern follow in the United Kingdom? Um, and that is a question, I say, we don't know the answer to yet. A uh, few signs at the moment, but I, I think there is a pattern beyond what's about to happen in Germany. Uh, thank you, Tom, from Brighton. Uh, Connor Jones from Wales. Uh, the oh yeah, uh, what yeah he's wondering the natural gas CO two. Uh, sorry, no, this is not uh, Connor Jones from Wales. Asks who do you see in Labour at the moment who might? I'm getting I almost made the same mistake as I did uh, switching Walthamstow wetlands with a bar in Mallorca. Uh, Connor wonders who do you see in Labour at the moment who might have the necessary ability for winning elections. Um, what I would just say to that is focus on uh, Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, who had a very good conference, I think. The two of them should do more events together. Um, there were one or two others, I think, who were really, uh, who are really impressive, more than one or two, on that front bench. Uh, and they should be use more prominently. I'll talk about who they are and you know on different occasion. Perhaps after I think there might be a shadow cabinet reshuffle soon. Um, and then they should do quite a lot of team events. Sounds weird, but um, when Labour were all, all over the place in the um, February 1974 election, they did a lot of things where there were quite a few. Harold Wilson knackered and unpopular then on the whole 
quite often did events with charismatic stars around him. And they did a very effective party election broadcast. I only know this, you know, who's going to shaft Starmer and take over and, you know, on, on the sense of term or go. But let's see, Connor. Uh, again, fluid politics. Finally, Andrew Kitching goes through the various crises, uh, the natural gas, CO2 and fuel shortages could lead to all sorts of consequences. I told you that word would be coming up a lot, consequences, including civil disorder. And with COVID still not fully played out, the winter could be very bleak. If this is the last question, I thought we'd end with a bit of light-hearted stuff, you know. If Johnson brings in restrictions on travel and movement, he could have a serious problem with the libertarian wing of his party. Many of these supply chain problems could be ameliorated by rejoining the EEA single market, not the European Union. But of course, the Conservatives would be reluctant to do this. Not reluctant, Andrew, they won't, I can tell you. The situation looks very depressing. And although I was only 12 at the time, it reminds me very much of 1973-4. Heath had a healthy majority, but faced many problems, but also a nimble-footed leader of the opposition in Harold Wilson. Starmer isn't in his league. The next six months are going to be very turbulent. Yeah, there are echoes with 73 to 74. Uh, Heath was an awkward public performer. Johnson uh, loves public performance, even though I think he is at times very tentative and awkward. But clearly the voters or some uh, can relate to him in the way that voters never did to Heath, not least in the depths of crises. And you're right that Wilson was as nimble-footed uh, in that period as he was earlier, even though he was being widely dismissed at the time by his party and the media. Um, so who knows what that different cast of characters and a different context, but pretty potentially deadly as seriously, as seriously deadly? You know what I mean? It's been a long podcast. Uh, yeah, uh, let's conclude on that. I think we're all, all going to agree that the next six months are going to be very turbulent. Yeah, thank you, Andrew, for that and that parallel of the early 70s. I was kind of close to your age then, Andrew, and it was when I first got into a, a sense that politics was an astonishing drama, but of course of great significance as well, touching people's lives in all kinds of ways. Yeah, what a period. Two elections in 74, referendum in 75, you know, all epic stuff. Well, we've gone on for more than an hour. If you've been running, you, you, you've done at least 10K. Some of you, 20K. Me, 5K. Well, I haven't been running. I've been talking. But look, thanks for a brilliant range of questions. Say, hopefully see you at King's Place live. Yeah. On October the 11th. Or if not, do book tickets for the stream. It'll be streaming live. If you can't make it live, you can watch it later if you buy the tickets. And yeah, thank you for your brilliant questions. Now I'll give you the email address for those new listeners who haven't got it noted. Here it is. Um, I still have, you know, I still struggle to learn it off by heart. Steve Rick, that's Steve, then R-I-C, 1414 at iCloud dot dot com dot doc dot com. Steve Rick 14 at iCloud dot com. Go to the King's Place website to get you tickets we're going to have some fun there and have a good week yeah Tory conference twists and turns to come thanks so much for listening bye <laughs>